Welcome to the One Away Show, presented by BW Missions. I am Brian Wish, and I am your host, and thanks so much for being here. On this show, I sit down with compelling entrepreneurs, authors, and rising leaders to talk through their most transformative relationships, experiences, and epiphanies. Curated with entrepreneurial leaders in mind, we'll dig into these finite moments in people's lives and understand how they helped set their path forward. Tim Huang is the founder and CEO of FiscalNote, a privately held software data and media company headquartered in Washington, D.C. The global company has offices across America in Brussels, India, Seoul, and powers almost 5,000 of the world's largest and most influential law firms, legal departments, and governments. Through Fiscal Note, Tim has worked and raised venture capital and acquisition financing from the likes of The Economist, S&P Global, Mark Cuban, Jerry Yang, Steve Case, NEA, Ren Ren, and others. Prior to founding Fiscal Note, Huang started his career in politics in the Obama 08 campaign, assisting in the election of the first Obama administration. He was elected to the Montgomery Board of Education a year later, overseeing a budget of over $4 billion for 22,000 public employees. As a student, Tim also served as the president of the National Youth Association and the founder of Operation Fly, a national 501c3 organization that served inner-city children in underprivileged areas around the country. Tim was profiled in the Forbes 30 Under 30, Inc. 30 Under 30, CNN's Top 10 Startups, Business Insider's Top 25 Hottest Startups, and many others. He is a graduate of Princeton and attended Harvard Business School. He is also currently a World Economic Forum technology pioneer, a trustee on the board of the Greater Washington Community Foundation, as well as a board member of the After School Alliance. He's a member of the Economic Club of Washington, D.C., the Council of Korean Americans, and the Young Presidents Organization. Hey, Tim, welcome to the One Away Show. Yeah, great to be on here. Yeah, absolutely. Great to have you. Uh, been great to follow, follow your journey uh, for some time. Uh, what is the one away moment that you want to share with us today? Yeah, you know, I think that there's obviously so many that, that you can kind of point to, you know, throughout my career. I think maybe the first one that I can, you know, imagine from the very early days of, of when I was very young was actually during the 2000 presidential election. So I was about seven, eight years old. Uh, I remember actually, this was um, one of the first uh, presidential elections where um, CNN, CNN was kind of using those big screens to talk about the elections, right? Um, and as you know, each state uh, was kind of called, they would kind of color in the state, right? Either red for Republicans and blue for Democrats. And I remember actually kind of watching um, the television program, um, you know, really, really late into the night, right? Because if you recall during the 2000 presidential election, um, you know, they never called Florida on that night, right? There was a whole Supreme Court case and whatnot that that kind of came out, you know, m- multiple weeks later. But um, there was just like all the excitement and attention and um, numbers and sort of um, you know deep kind of political and demographic analysis that was going into, you know, was it going to be Bush? Was it going to be Gore? Why did you know a certain state go this way? Why did a certain state go that way? Um, and I remember, you know, I was probably like in the second grade at the time. Um, that leaving a really big impression on me. Um, and uh, if I had to kind of point to like one particular interest of sort of how uh, I got sucked into the political world, it was probably like that was the most memorable moment of my childhood, uh, really watching that election, kind of see how that played out on, on that on that Tuesday evening. All right. Well, that's a good uh, that's a good way to start leaving me on uh, on the eggs here. So uh, I I 
vaguely remember, not in the detail that you do. So my, what I'm curious about, and you said that was like the first thing that gave you an interest where prior to that election, I mean, did you have conversations at home with your family about politics and, and government or that just for the first time you became really fascinated with an election and, and what that meant uh, for the place in the country that you were living? You know, at the time, my my parents had just moved to Washington, D.C., and my father actually, you know, so from, I think, 1997, 1998, started working for the U.S. government. And so he wasn't particularly, like, politically involved or engaged, but I do remember having, like, some conversations around the dinner table about, you know, the state of um, America and kind of politics and the reason why my parents had immigrated from South Korea to the United States and uh, you know, just going back a little bit further in the 1980s, Korea had gone through sort of a, a military coup. South Korea had gone through a military coup and it kind of ended almost like 40 years of kind of military dictatorship and they transitioned into a, a democracy, full on democracy. And that's one of the reasons why my parents kind of come over, you know, from South Korea in the 80s to really kind of pursue, I would say, a more stable and uh, kind of opportunistic kind of, uh, you know, economic and political environment. So I, I think that you know, while it wasn't, may, may not have been like explicitly discussed, um, it was probably something that was kind of in the back of my mind or back of the family's mind. And I also just think that, you know, um, maybe at seven or eight years old, that's kind of like the first time where you can sort of critically think about certain things. Um, you're probably a little bit too young, <laughs> you know, before, you know, elementary school, but in around that second, third grade, you start to develop some interests and some thoughts and some opinions that I think, you know, were, were you know, really critical for me, uh, you know, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I appreciate you giving context to your parents and how they came from uh, South Korea and, um, you know, what that environment and your dad and working in the military and how that shaped things for you. So it seems like that night, you know, had a big impact on you. You, know, you described the screens, you know, and how they were showing up red or blue. As you look back on that experience and that childhood moment, what were some of those things that you saw yourself very interested in or that really stood out to you that maybe started to put you down that rabbit hole uh, around politics and the political shapings of our future? Yeah, I mean, I think it just came down to like a fascination around like the political system and how like this system could result in different changes for society, right? Mm -hmm. So I actually remember after, you know, that kind of election period, I just got like, you know, kind of consumed by the political world. And I started, um, you know, in middle school, I ended up interning for, you know, district attorney's office and for a couple of like congressmen, you know, uh, entering constituent complaints and things into a database and helping out on campaigns. And, you know, for the longest time, I wanted to be a uh, uh, prosecutor, actually, because I felt mm -hmm. like being a, a prosecutor was like on the, the edge of like implementing law, right? So if the political system was about channeling our citizens' opinions about, you know, what they wanted to enact from a country and nation perspective, you know, a prosecutor or somebody in law enforcement, um, their job was to take those laws and make sure that they're enforced, that they're not broken, that people uh, abide by those laws. So I would say like, even through, you know, middle school and a good part of high school, you know, a lot of my uh, my focus and intention from a career perspective was really trying to actually go down the prosecutorial pathway and, and you know, in some ways be some, you know, somewhat politically engaged in that process. 
So, I mean, so cool. I mean, you, you did get involved in, you know, middle school. Uh, if you recall, uh, do you remember any of the complaints by constituents? Were there any uh, patterns or, or things that, you know, stood out to you when you were entering those in? You know, honestly, you know, most people, they think about politics and they think about these like big policy issues like, you know, inflation and fiscal stimulus and, you know, bailouts and blah, 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 blah. But like, honestly, most people, what they care about is just stuff in their neighborhood and their local, local areas, right? They care about their schools. They care about like potholes. They care about like traffic lights. They care about, uh, you know, just all the normal things that, um, that, you know, most people have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And so certainly politicians do have to deal with like large national country moving issues. But I think that, you know, sometimes when you are, you know, involved in politics for too long, you just kind of forget that most people, you know, they just kind of live their lives and they care about their kids. They care about, you know, like going to the grocery store and having the, having a good job and all those things, you know, I think are, you know, kind of the things that people, you know, dial in about constantly to their, to the elected officials. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting, right? You see that such a micro level opposed to the macro level that, you know, you hear when people are running for office. Uh, Tim, you, you know, you said something about out of a result of an election, right? You could see how decisions made at a federal level by presidents and, you know, surrounding uh, decision makers could shape, you know, and affect millions and millions of people. Uh, for you at the time and in, in your family, I mean, whatever you're comfortable sharing, what were some of those maybe bigger kind of topics and issues that were close to you and that you hit home that you really started taking a uh, strong stance on? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to the, just the fact that I, you know, had come from a, an immigrant born family. Right. So, you know, I was born in the United States, but my parents had immigrated here, you know, from South Korea, as I mentioned, and a lot of the issues that they cared about were very, again, local, right. So, um, they cared about um, having a great education for their kids. Um, and so the quality of schooling and education, I think, was particularly important. You know, they care about immigration, um, right? So in terms of the community that they had and a lot of the challenges and issues that other Korean Americans or Asian Americans um, uh, were kind of facing at a similar context in terms of folks that wanted to come to the United States and, you know, kind of build careers and, uh, you know, long lasting jobs and build families here. You know, and there's quite a significant number of kind of political issues in that, in that, in that kind of scope and context. I know they, I think they care about, you know, like economic stability, you know, a lot of them had kind of come from countries where uh, I would say uh, going back to a little bit of history, um, you know, Korea, South Korea had sort of almost gone bankrupt in the late nineties as a result of the you know IMF uh, kind of financial crisis, you know, the state of the country, you know, you know, probably since the late nineties or so has been constant, in constant flux um, as a result of, you know, large, very, very large companies going bankrupt or, or kind of causing a significant amount of economic instability. And so, you know, the issues around economic stability for the middle class and the like, I think are very particularly important. Again, like, you know, at an aggregate and macro level, it sounds like some very complex issues, but ultimately, you know, people want a couple simple things. They want, you know, great schools. They want to, you know, they want to make it easy for them to be able to build a great life from an economic perspective. And, you know, they want to kind of believe in this dream that like, if you work hard and put your head down and, and, you know, try and make something of it, that's something that you will get rewarded for that outcome over the course of the next couple of years or so. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, education, immigration, I mean, obviously major things, uh, but for you and, and kind of your own experiences, I can see how 
um, you, know, you took a closer eye at that, um, as you should, and other people who are trying to take the same pursuit that your family did, you know, making that path possible for them, um, for the same opportunities. So, um, very, very good. Um, Tim, you know, what was your, you know, when you were young and, you know, you're middle school, did, did you know, you know, obviously what you're doing to a fiscal node and I think some of our conversations about, you know, different aspirations, did you know then like you were going to build a career path in the political sector? Um, was that like just very evident to you? Uh, where did you go after, you know, middle school? How did you get this, this passion and this drive and hunger and thirst continue to develop? Well, you know, I think it just comes down to, you know, again, going, creating a, an opportunity to make social change. And I remember, you know, as I was going through middle school and high school, um, you know, I kind of was continued down this pathway of wanting to become an attorney and a prosecutor and you know, potentially a politician and the like, largely because I thought that, you know, politics was an opportunity to express a lot of the interests that I had um, and the opportunities for change in that particular vehicle were very, very high. And so, as you know, you know, I ended up uh, working for Senator Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, um, which I thought was, you know, particularly a great experience because it was a very entrepreneurial kind of type of environment. You know, it was the, one of the first opportunities that I had to sort of be, you know, very, very engaged uh, from a political participation perspective in terms of organizing people and knocking on doors and, you know, working on policy and so on and so forth. That That's kind of a great example of, of as I was starting to become an adult, me starting to formulate some, some of the things I was particularly interested in. And then when I was, when I was 17 years old, ended up, you know, running for office myself, right? So um, decided that I was going to run for office, you know, at the localist of local levels at the, uh, the Board of Education and, you know, ended up getting elected and serving there and, and kind of seeing uh, not just the political process of getting elected and listening to constituents and, you know, kind of talking to voters, but actually the policymaking process, which actually is divorced from the, the political process somewhat in terms of writing policy and trying to pass some type of policy or legislation, mm-hmm. you know, um, conflicting with, you know, a given legislature or a regulator or the governor's office or the county council or whatnot, conflicting around tax policy or whatever the case is, right? These are like the the nitty gritty of like running government, which is very different from like the kind of going out there and talking to voters and talking to constituents. And so I felt like, you know, by the time I was 18 years old, um, I did get a pretty good understanding of, you know, what the political process was and what the policymaking process was. But, you know, uh, to your you know very earliest point, like I had no inclination that I was going to become a technology founder, technology entrepreneur. Right. Um, like I, graduate from high school, I'd done this whole political thing. And, you know, by the time I got to Princeton in undergrad, um, like my fundamental view was that I was going to continue down this political pathway. And, you know, I, you know, went straight to, uh, at the time it's called the Woodrow Wilson School of Public Policy, um, you know, trying to really double down and, and become a really great policymaker. Um, but just kind of for, you know, we can talk about this a little bit, a lot of different reasons got turned around and ended up going into the technology world. But, you know, I think there was just sort of like this long arc from, you know, when I was very young to even all the way when I went to college, where I was just laser focused on, you know, policy and politics and, you know, trying to make a difference from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a I definitely want to get to the, you know, fiscal note and technology side of this uh, in this interview. 
but what I'm the insight here that I'm picking up on, it's just your, you, you, you got experience from all these different sides. I mean, from, you know, document, documenting constituent complaints to helping Obama on the campaign, on the writing policy side, like you, you, you've been able to create a holistic and integrated view of how it all works. Um, something that I wanted to ask you about uh, is, you know, you're talking about Obama and helping him on the campaign and then helping, you know, on the policy side and writing it and what that takes to go through and how they're two completely separate but connected um, parts. What were some of your learnings, right? When you were knocking on doors, when you were helping campaign, what did you see? I mean, Obama had such a strong message, you know, even with what I do, I'm curious, like how was that message that from the top down uh, shared through at the local campaign level and how did you distribute that? And then I want to ask you about on the policy writing side, but uh, after, but yeah, what was it like for you and what were some of your biggest learnings on the campaign trail? You know, the, the, the thing that was so innovative about the 2008 presidential campaign with, um, uh, with president Obama was actually, um, it was one of the first presidential campaigns. It wasn't the first, but it was one of the first, um, that started to take advantage of online organizing plus the, the era of social media, um, you know, that kind of come up through the ranks, right? So Facebook was kind of coming up very rapidly through the early, the early two thousands, you know, uh, Twitter was founded in like 2007, 2008. And so you started to sort of see, um, a lot of kind of information in that context of, um, of translating a national message into local, uh, objectives, right? So, you know, oftentimes, um, you know, the, the national policy campaign would come out with a statement or, you know, some general policy framework. And then what was very innovative was that they actually empowered local organizers, you know, to make determinations around how that particularly would translate into local communities, right? Mm-hmm. So the president would say, you know, we want to change this and this aspect of education policy, right? Most people don't really understand um, you, you need to be able to sort of turn that particular national policy into how it impacts your local school district, right? Mm-hmm. Around standardized testing, around, you know, pathway to higher education, around whatever it is. And so you say, you know, what does the president's um, desire around increasing funding for community college means for this particular community college in your community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and be able to sort of tie those things together you could give, give a lot of autonomy to people on the ground uh, to be able to translate the message, you know, into something that makes sense. So mm. I think that because of the proliferation of kind of online organizing tools and social media in particular, um, you kind of created these um, feedback loops around what was working and what wasn't working. And then these affinity groups around, you know, people that were attracted to other issues or other topical areas that really resonated with, um, uh, you know, the, either the president or, um, you know, the opponent or whatever the case was. And I think that, you know, over the course of the last 12 years or so, we've seen how, you know, those affinity groups and social media can actually distort, uh, kind of political, uh, perspectives, but, you know, going back to 2008, 2007, these kind of tools and tactics, I think were fairly innovative in terms of, you know, turning out the vote and, and, you know, creating, uh, common communities of people to kind of mm-hmm. come out together. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you said about President Obama's had a policy at an education level, thinking about how that boils down to the local community level, right? And the integration of that, which, you know, is the job 
behind the scenes that needs to get done. But I don't think, you know, the everyday viewer is just kind of listening, kind of is thinking about. So, I mean, it's got to be, my, my question is, is it has to be extremely complex to integrate, you know, what, what's going on behind the scenes, you know, from what you've seen to kind of bring some of those efforts into effect and then make sure something at a national level is distributed to the local level. I mean, how does that work? Well, I mean, I think that just comes down to the everyday conversations you have with people over the phone and, you know, door to door and, and things like that. Right. So, um, a lot of that is, um, you know, being able to organize like large groups of people, you know, in a very, very short amount of time, you know, over the span of, let's say like six to 10 months or so, um, and, you know, get them out into key districts and areas that are really important to, to flip. Right. So, um, <clears throat> in 2008, in order to flip Virginia blue, um, you know, the president needed to win, you know, Hampton roads, Richmond, kind of that, that general, uh, portion of kind of Eastern Virginia. Um, and that's like, you know, uh, that that's like one of the areas where you just have to make sure that you're organizing very, very well. Um, you're talking to as many voters as possible. Um, and you're, you're kind of getting the, the president's message out there, um, you know, in some form or fashion, right? I mean, a lot of people think when you're kind of watching, you know, CNN or MSNBC or Fox news, that politics is just like a bunch of like suits talking to each other. But in reality, like electoral politics, it really comes down to individual conversations with individual voters in their houses and over the phone. Like that's how you win an election. You know, that's, you have to talk to as many people as possible and you have to get your message out there. Um, and that's like, just, you know, it's, it's just the kind of rough and tumble of politics as you're kind of working through each of those things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, just from our shared Kairos days, um, you know, the boots on the ground, uh, talk to the right people, at, you know, and the masses, you know, works around the central message. So, um, totally very cool. You've got that experience. And then on the policy side, before we kind of shift into kind of what it's led for you from a career perspective, um, for those that are maybe not as informed or don't really understand how it all works behind the scenes, what does it take? You know, you, Obama wins, and now it's time to go in and, and pass legislation. Uh, what what's that process like behind the scenes, from what you understand, and how that works, and maybe some of the things that people, you know, you walk on the street and have a conversation with, would have no idea around the complexities or what it takes to actually do this and do it well. Yeah, I mean, you know, from a policy perspective, it's it's a very complicated thing, right? Um, and it's a very, very messy process. And I think people kind of inherently understand that, but um, just because you win an election, you know, whether you're in Congress or the White House or, you know, city council or mayor or whatever it is, it doesn't necessarily give you like an unlimited right to um, like pass whatever you want, whenever you want it. You know, the country is very complex. We have you know, hundreds of millions of people, 300 million plus people around the country. And this, these 300 million people across our country, they come from different economic backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, different uh, uh, ethnicity backgrounds, you know, different careers and life experiences, you know, rural and urban and whatever it is. And so people have interests, right? So they have interests around uh, making sure that they want to live a better life, um, that they, you know, want to advance their particular agenda. And so, What's very complicated about this is that it takes a lot of prioritization um, to think about of all the problems you could solve in the country. You know, what are the key critical problems that you want to resolve, you know, in a very short amount of time? Because it requires a lot of effort and time and resources and 
campaigning and winning people over to actually get to that point. And if you live in Washington or around Washington, you kind of understand that like all these different people and all these different constituencies are represented by um, large organizations or nonprofits or trade associations. So you might have like labor unions, right, who are representing their sets of constituents and workers. Um, you might have uh, trade groups and trade associations, right? So, you know, the American Medical Association or the American Home Builders Association or whatever it is. You might have particular special interest groups, right? So, you know, groups like um, the Sierra Club or Planned Parenthood or the NRA or whatever the case is that have their own particular interests. Uh, and then you have, you know, the broader kind of country and their particular sets of constituencies and interests, right? So you have an election and then you kind of toss all these interests of people and they're trying to all pass policy at the same time in the same 365 days of the year. And that's what politics is from a policymaking perspective, right? Is that, you know, you sort of set an agenda, here are the things we're going to pass, here are all the people we kind of have to drag along or, or work with in order to kind of make that particular policy possible. Here are all the people that are going to oppose it. Here are the reasons why they're going to oppose it. And you kind of have to work through that process. And so, mm. you know, that happens at the national level. It happens at the state level. Um, you know, whenever you have a governor and a state assembly that's that's elected, it happens at the local level, right? You know, whether it's a new mayor and a new city council, they're trying to pass some new um, zoning regulation or some new curriculum change to schools. You know, it just... That's that's the policymaking process is a very messy, very um, entrenched process that it's just very complicated, I think, as you kind of go through working through it. And that's, you know, why we have a democracy and why we need, you know, continuous new people and new energy and new ideas to kind of get flooded into the system so that, you know, the, the whole system works in terms of making the country a better place once you kind of get to the other side of that system. Yeah, no, I mean, the layers and the complexities and I mean, just the hoops and ladders you have to go through and then think through and, and kind of navigate at the relational level. I mean, um, take a lot of shared determination and, um, you know, clearly a political uh, ability to communicate and connect. So um, I appreciate you sharing the insight. I just think it's great context to kind of what's led up to um, your own experience. So Tim, let's jump to kind of the genesis of fiscal note and kind of the founding and the birthing story for you, you know, you've been getting all this experience. What led you to starting the company? How did you see an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to make a go at it at an entrepreneurial level. Yeah. You know, I, I think that um, for all the excitement that I talk about in terms of politics and policy, you know, when I, when I started to get into college, I just, became really jaded and disenfranchised, you know, from the kind of political process. And I felt like the policymaking process was too hard and too slow, you know, to actually make real societal change. And at the same time, I think that I, I kind of grown up through the, the post era of the dot-com kind of bubble and the technology landscape was just starting to rapidly accelerate um, again, um, you know, as I was entering into college. And so, you know, a number of companies that were just kind of popping out there, it, you know, it wasn't as crazy as today, but, um, you know, it's just the excitement around startups and the conversations around what was possible in terms of um, social networking and uh, uh, mobile devices. You know, Steve Jobs had introduced the, the iPhone in 2007, um, you know, the opportunities that presented in terms of location and mobility, um, you know, the future in artificial intelligence. I felt like that was going to be the area where society was going to be fundamentally transformed and that no amount of public policy or politics was going to be able to make a difference relative to 
you know, the changing landscape of the technology world. And so the driving force of affordable healthcare was not going to be, um, you know, people in Congress. It was going to be through, um, you know, enterprising technology founders that made healthcare more affordable. The driving force around, you know, banking the underbanked across America was not going to be through the Treasury Department, but it was going to be through, um, you know, new fintech and mobile applications that made it easier for people to interact with financial products. And so I fundamentally felt like the market um, was kind of, or the broader kind of industry and whatnot were, were, were changing. And I wanted to build a technology company that really kind of combined my two interests in government and technology kind of together. And, you know, I was maybe, you know, 20, 21 years old at the time. I just gotten accepted to Harvard Business School from Princeton. And, you know, I was matriculating to HBS and I just kind of, you know, one summer grabbed, you know, two of my buddies from school and said, you know, Hey guys, let's, let's take a, a one-way flight to Silicon Valley, you know, plop ourselves there for a couple of months and see if we can come out with an idea that could be viable. And, you know, I, as I said, we were like 21 years old at the time, we kind of didn't know what we were doing. And so, you know, we kind of flew out there, you know, we, a couple thousand bucks from, you know, summer savings and jobs and internships and things like that. And, um, that was really the genesis of fiscal note. I mean, hmm. you know, we we're living out of a motel six in Sunnyvale and it iterated through a bunch of different ideas and ended up on, uh, what is, you know, today fiscal notes. And that's kind of how the company was born. Wow. Incredible founding story. I want I, just curious, like, was it, was it as random as it sounds or it sounds like you had a bit of a urge, like an inner pool that said, you need to go do this. Uh, there's an opportunity here. You just didn't know what, like, you know, I'm just, if you trace your steps back to that moment, was it just a true random act or was it like a, a true pull from inside? I mean, it wasn't like completely random, right? I mean, we, 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 th we definitely thought about it. And, you yeah. know, at the time, a bunch of my classmates at Princeton were, you know, they're going to internships at McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and at Google or whatever. And I just felt like, yeah, you know, you can always get a job at one of those yeah. companies, but like, you know, we're young, you know, we have some ideas, we want to test them out. Let's just, you know, spend a summer seeing if they work. It was a very calculated risk reward kind of process in our heads, which is that like, okay, so if this fails, we just gave up three months of our lives. I mean, it's not that big of a deal in terms of, you know, kind of testing it out and seeing if it works or not. Yeah. So you, so you get out to Sunnyvale. I mean, it sounds like you have maybe some sense of an idea, but kind of experimenting. I mean, where were you guys meeting people? I mean, what, what was it? What were your first moves and your first set of actions once you came out to the Bay? You know, the technology landscape has changed so much in 2021 and 2022. Like there's like this whole ecosystem and, you know, all these blogs and Twitter and like, you know, stuff about how to build a startup. And there's like all these books and communities and lectures and webinars and whatnot. But when we were, when we were getting started in 2013, 2014, there was, there was basically nothing. I mean, you know, there was uh, like a couple of blogs on, you know, on the Y Combinator page and like, you know, some articles here and there, you know, about like starting a technology company, but it was like kind of like a wild, wild west. And so I remember us spending a lot of time talking to other people that were thinking about starting companies. We went to a lot of meetup events, you know, talking to kind of investors and venture capitalists and, you know, just kind of trying to get involved in, in the community. And it was a grind for sure. I mean, you know, we were, we were just trying to meet people and, um, uh, you know, at the same time, every single day, probably working like from, you know, eight or nine in the morning to like midnight, every single day, seven days a week, building a product and talking to customers and, 
you know, trying to raise maybe a little bit of seed capital for the company. And that was, um, you know, we probably spent the, the first couple of months just kind of doing that, like trying to meet people and trying to build a product and trying to scale the business. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. What were some of the early, well, we'll just go back to what you said, you know, you were out at a time when there, like you said, not a ton of education, it must've been hard, but also that naive, just cause you didn't know you could kind of throw yourself into things with, and just figure it out. So I'm just, for you, what were some of maybe the early working product models for uh, fiscal note that you started to formulate and maybe see could be the direction um, for the future business? What, 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 the, what were some of the early learnings? Well, you know, luckily at fiscal, we got in, we actually hit product market fit very early and, you know, to this day, I'm pretty thankful for that, but, you know, I kind of, studied a bunch of different business models of companies that, you know, I, I respected and emulated, you know, companies like Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters and, you know, FactSet and Morningstar, where like their entire business model was basically taking some data and selling it to customers, you know, on a subscription basis. And I felt like, you know, for the last 30 years or so, 40 years, um, Wall Street was transformed, you know, through, um, you know, being able to kind of build these machines that um, aggregated stock prices and fixed income yields and, you know, um, the weather and commodity prices and whatever, um, and then could sell that to traders and to banks and, and institutions at a pretty good economic model. And having kind of come from the political world, I felt like, you know, uh, people needed the same information about what the government was doing, right? So, um, all the policies and the legislation and the regulations and, you know, what congressmen were saying at any given time, you know, what uh, the Federal Reserve was going to do, be able to sort of take all that information um, and then put it into like a machine and mm-hmm. sell that software tool to customers, you know, at a 20 or $30,000 a year product so that they could essentially um, understand all the stuff that was going on. That was the initial kind of version of the product that we created. And, you know, we tested, you know, different customer segments, you know, where hedge funds going to buy this, where law firms going to buy this, where companies going to buy this. Um, we tested, you know, different price points, different marketing strategies, and then ultimately ended up on, you know, kind of at least initially uh, selling to companies and expanding from there to kind of government agencies and expanding from there to nonprofits. But um, it really kind of came down to like that particular business and that particular problem that we wanted to solve. And then just iterating and talking to a bunch of people eventually to get to a point where we felt a lot of conviction around what we were building and that the fact that the market wanted to buy it overall. Mm, yeah. That's super cool. Hey, you studied all the models and then how, how can you do it for, you know, the political sphere? So what, I mean, from, from that work and, you know, those early days to tell us today, you know, what does that product and sets of products, you know, what does that look like 10 plus years later? Yeah, no. So FiscalNet is, um, you know, I think we're a category leading company in, in the space now. I mean, we are one of the largest technology companies headquartered. We moved our headquarters back to Washington, D.C. So, you know, one of the largest technology companies headquartered in D.C. You know, we service um, 3,000 plus customers uh, around the world, uh, hundreds of government agencies. So FBI, CDC, NIH, uh, the White House, the Federal Reserve all use FiscalNet to monitor policies and regulations um, around the country and in different countries around the world. We service, you know, over half the Fortune 100 uh, and their legal departments. Um, and then all those organizations I was talking about, the trade associations and unions, you know, on K Street are customers of ours. 
we've expanded the company quite dramatically, actually, to covering now um, you know, parts of the UK, the European Union, uh, big portions of Asia, in, across India and Singapore and Korea um, and Australia. We also have coverage areas in Latin America. And so we're really kind of creating this globalized view of, um, of what any policymaker, politician, regulator is doing, you know, from Indonesia to India to Indiana, um, and really kind of looking at every aspect of what policymakers are doing. And, you know, I think we built a, a really interesting business. We do just hundreds of employees that are kind of really devoted towards this particular mission of, of um, you know, helping people to understand what policymakers are up to. And that's, you know, it sounds almost cheesy, but it's, it's like been this outgrowth of like everything that I've been interested in into yeah. kind of channeling it into this kind of company and kind of scaling it over time. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a foundation for like you said, all your interests that you can pour into and kind of learn a ton. Just curious, you know, as you guys are watching and sharing information around policy making, what have been some of the maybe byproducts of this product and business that maybe you weren't expecting, you know, perhaps more ethical decision makings around policy or, you know, policy makers having more of a keen eye on their own, you know, behaviors given kind of how you do things. I'm just curious, you know, what you've maybe seen that you maybe weren't expecting beyond the monetary kind of impact from, from the business. Well, I think that the, I wasn't particularly surprised by it, but one of the things I was particularly interested by was the pace of change in areas where um, there's a significant amount of technology development, right? So uh, if you can kind of imagine like areas like ride sharing or shared economy um, in the early kind of 2010s, um, you know, obviously there's a significant amount of kind of regulations that kind of happen as a result of um, what was going on in the particular context, right? So, you know, Uber and Lyft facing significant regulatory challenges in different markets or, uh, you know, companies like Airbnb, you know, uh, working directly with attorneys generals around different states and, you know, kind of really kind of seeing that intersection between regulation and technology. Mm. And now you're seeing it actually today in things like cryptocurrencies or cannabis or online gaming or, you know, um, sustainability in the environment where policymakers are just acting much more swiftly, much more aggressively than they were before. And that's in response to the pace of technological change that's going on overall. And so I've just been consistently surprised by like the clashes of where that's been going on. And we used to do this event down in Silicon Valley called the state of the state of regulation of Silicon Valley. And maybe this is like 2014, 2015, when we first started it, like, you know, we had like 20 people showing up to this stuff, right? And it's like, I would have like local congressmen and like, you know, regulators from CFPB and the SEC and stuff like talking about how they're viewing particular regulations. And now if you go on Twitter, it's like all anyone talks about is like, what is the SEC going to do about regulating cryptocurrencies or whatever, right? So I feel like the technology industry has come quite a long way in terms of their interactions with regulators. And it's something that um, I've been you know particularly surprised by over the course of the last you know, couple of years or so. Yeah. Wow. Um, and which is one of your, which you said earlier, and one of your early frustrations in co- getting to college was the, the slow, slowness exchange, you know, and now you're seeing the shifts, uh, perhaps a faster uh, pace, uh, in a way that's compounded from those events in 2014, 15. Very cool. You know, Tim, one of the things you talked about building this, this global company now that's, you know, you have oversight on different parts and regions of 
the world uh, and know what's going on. Of course, the data is extremely valuable. One of the things that has stuck with me uh, since our last conversation was you talking about expansion and acquisition and to what degree you can share. You know, I'm just curious from a business strategy perspective and how you're thinking about things, how, how have you thought about your expansion strategy? So, you know, the audience can hear and what does that mean for the future of fiscal note in your eyes? Yeah. Well, you know, I think just getting down into the brass tacks of business, right. Um, our business is a subscription business. Um, and so it's fairly simple in terms of how you grow our company, right. Uh, the first and most important thing is that you renew your customers every year. Um, and that serves as the base and foundation for future growth. Um, once you kind of look at the renewals of our existing customer base, there's two ways to grow. Number one is you get more customers. Um, and so we're looking at opportunities in getting more customers in places like Europe or in Asia, certainly in parts of America as well, um, particularly in state and local governments where, you know, we haven't seen as much penetration as we have historically. But the second way to grow is to take your existing customer base and give them more things that they can use. You know, that's an area where we continue to innovate and also acquire, you know, new businesses to be able to kind of offer more and more things to our existing customers. So in that context, I think that, you know, we're really interested in two things. The first thing is we're interested in getting more data. You know, we're interested in getting more understanding and a broader understanding of what's going on. So recently, you know, we made a couple of acquisitions, uh, companies like Oxford Analytica or Frontier View that expand um, policy intelligence actually into market intelligence. So helping, you know, in things like um, interest rates or um, labor, uh, uh, kind of average labor rates in particular markets, um, you know, manufacturing or kind of supply chain costs um, that are the downstream impacts of, say, like inflation or fiscal policy. We've made some other company acquisitions of companies like ISIL in Korea um, that, you know, give incremental kind of data sets around um, things like, um, you know, ride sharing patterns or share economy patterns or e-commerce or retail patterns. Um, they're the kind of the broader implications of stimulus or kind of economic policy. And then the second thing that we're interested in is um, workflow or software solutions that can extend the use of this data, right? So um, you might say, okay, thank you, FiscalNo, for giving us all this information about what policymakers are saying companies have to do about environmental regulations. So now what? Um, well, you have to comply with those regulations, right? You have to start collecting data around carbon emissions. You have to start collecting data around your carbon footprint. You have to report that data to the SEC and to the, uh, to the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange, whatever it is. And so we'll give you the tools to be able to comply with those regulations. Hmm. Um, and so we're really very interested in, in either acquiring or building out tools in those spaces. So other areas like uh, cryptocurrencies or cannabis or uh, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles and the like, where, you know, there is a significant amount, amount of regulations coming down the line and companies and organizations now have to comply with those regulations. You know, those are the areas where we're investing very aggressively to kind of drive, you know, some level of growth into the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it seems like, uh, uh just a deeper way, uh, to drive analysis and inaction and, and what's coming and, uh, you know, how it's going to apply to everyone's lives, you know, operating in those spaces. So, you know, what's, what's interesting is, uh, you know, growing up, you know, you talked from the early part of the interview about just uh, seeing some societal shifts at, you know, early election back when you were seven and, you know, seeing Bush and Gore. And, and now, you know, you have a business that can provide data 
to uh, people to, to make, you know, be a part of some of those big shifts that are happening around the world. And um, whether you're in the office or not, like you have a company that can really drive, you know, a lot of behavior. Uh, and I think in a very impactful and open, transparent way. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's been a really interesting kind of ride, you know, in being able to really channel a lot of my interests. And I, you know, I think that a lot of founders, they ask me like, and like, what is your big piece of advice about starting a company or whatever? And I, I, the, I as cheesy and as corny as it sounds, I would say like, you should just really, you know, build something or found something in the areas of the, of that you're interested in. And, um, and to really kind of like follow your passion because I, fundamentally believe that technology is intersecting every industry, like financial services, healthcare, you know, energy, real estate, politics, every single one of these industries is being fundamentally transformed by technology. And so the intersection between technology and whatever your interest is, um, there's probably an unlimited amount of opportunity in that particular vector. Um, and the, the, uh, kind of unreal, advantage that you're going to have is that you're actually personally and individually interested in, you know, being able to make a change in that particular industry. And so, uh, yeah, it's been, it's definitely been a really interesting ride and just being able to to channel that into building this company. Yeah. Well, no, I, I, I think the advice, you know, that all the advice is don't follow your passion. Don't do this. I mean, I think you're right. You got to be intellectually and passionately stimulated by what you're working on day in and day out, because when kind of things get super hard and roadblocks come up, you, you know, the, the, the push to keep going. Um, so Tim, um, closing out here, whatever you can share, you know, look ahead for the next five, 10, 15 years, you know, what, what do you see for your life? You know, what do you see for evolution, uh, business, you, all the things that are in front of you based on kind of what you've built to date? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, fiscal note is, uh, obviously out there right now trying to go public, um, be a SPAC. And, and that's something that we're very committed to, you know, building fiscal note into, um, a long-term, um, sustainable, growing, durable public company. And, you know, I'd like to see the company, you know, be at a point where we can sort of look towards the future, you know, um, how do we get to from a hundred million in revenues to half a billion in revenues to a billion in revenues and so on and so forth, like building a very, very long-term sustainable business, you know, for the future. And I think that, you know, for me personally, you know, I love to be in environments where, you know, the, there's sort of a large amount of opportunity ahead of us, you know, in a very kind of entrepreneurial and very kind of dynamic and fast moving kind of pace. And the kind of phase of where fiscal net is right now is actually really interesting uh, because it's sort of emerging into the public markets and it's kind of entering into this point where there's sort of like an unlimited amount of potential. And so I think that I'm, you know, pretty focused on trying to make that happen right now. Uh, but, you know, I'm, you know, obviously always interested in, in a number of different kind of technology trends. And to my earlier point, if there's even just personal ways that I can, you know, uh, assist in, you know, some level of like societal change or whatever it is, you know, I'm always looking to for ways that kind of help out both, from a business perspective, but also from a personal and kind of personal interest perspective as well. Yeah. No, very cool. Uh, it seems like you have the right things in, in your mind. So when they show up in front of you, you kind of know where you want to dive in and kind of let your, your passion follow in those areas and have a great long-term plan to build, you know, we don't hear too many CEOs of today say, I want to build a long-term sustainable business to grow revenues to a hundred bill. You know, I think having that long-term view is, is awesome. And, uh, you know, more should emulate well, Tim, this has been wonderful. What, uh, 
if people wanted to reach out or you know follow along or find fiscal note, where do they where do they go? Yeah, we can always go to our website, fiscal.com. Um, my email is uh, you know, Tim at fiscal.com on you know Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you want to, whatever, whatever the kids are on these days, you know, and um, my <laughs> handle is always the same. It's uh, Tim T Wong. So always happy to engage with the broader community here. Awesome. Well, thanks for your uh, openness, uh, willingness to do this with me. I, I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, great to be on. If you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, I hope you leave a review on the platform of your choice and share it with a friend who you think would find it valuable. If you'd like to receive our written newsletter and thought leadership, head on over to bwmissions.com backslash newsletter and subscribe. See you on the next show.